Charm, the only podcast where every week is a brand new concept. I'm your producer, Ben, and alongside my director, Matt, we have a truly exciting show for you this week where we interview the director of our first ever Five Stars Under 50 Hall of Fame movie, The Plague, Mr. Hal Masonberg. We discuss not only the producer's cut of the film that we reviewed, but also Hal's superior and as of this recording, still unreleased writer and director's cut of the film. Please listen, enjoy, and help us get Hal's original vision out to the public. It's one thing to be successful in the film industry. I would know because I was in the film industry and I flamed out of that a long time ago. Uh, it's another thing, though, to excel in the film industry via so many different avenues. Uh, our guest today has done at least a little bit of everything in Hollywood, from assisting large-scale productions to producing the jazz documentary Jazz Nights, A Confidential Journey, uh, a deep background in photography, and making a career out of casting, both through casting and through casting workshops, to leading the charge on one of our favorite movies that we saw this year in The Plague. So please welcome to Fourth Times the Charm, the co-writer and director of the still unreleased writer and director's cut of The Plague and the head of Hal Masonberg's commercial acting workshop, the eponymous Mr. Hal Masonberg. Welcome. We already said this before we started recording, but how are you doing? <laughs> Great. Thank you, man. That's quite an introduction. Yeah, well, that. it's a it's a it's an introduction for someone who deserves it. One of our podcasts we do because the point of our show is we try to do something different every week. And one of the things we try to look at is a show called Five Stars Under 50, where we try to look and find underappreciated films that are on Amazon Prime. And our only qualifier is it needs to have under 50 reviews so on amazon we, prime specifically on amazon prime it, specifically it breaks there's down. a lot there uh so we've had some good we've had some less good but we always appreciate the passion people put into it so we saw clive barker's the plague on amazon prime and we fell in love with it and i think what we fell in love with wasn't necessarily the movie that we saw but the idea behind it because since then you've shown us your re-edited version mm -hmm. of the plague as it was meant to be or as close as it was meant to be that that we have and it really shines through on what a on what an effective affecting mm -hmm. movie it really is I remember when you and I watched it together, Ben, and during it, we were like, oh, like during watching the, the, the second year version of it, when we saw moments, we were like, oh, that's where that was going. And like, yeah. that's what that was. And like, I think Ben and I put it really well together when we were speaking before the podcast of what we think that we loved about when we first saw it was we saw the heart that was behind it and this bigger, very expansive universe. I'm, I'm the type of person who loves fiction that like touches on the unknown and plays with the notion that really what scares people is the things they don't understand. It's the greatest fear we have. 
And we hit the tone in that movie. And I was like, it genuinely excites me anytime I see an artist or any art form capture that motion. And we felt that watching the movie and then watching it again, it like the world expanded that much more, which made that many more questions, which is the perfect thing. Ah, I love it. I love it. It's, 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 it's great to hear. It's great to hear that the, um, the Clive Barker version of it, the producer's cut, um, which, which uh, was done completely without me or any of the creative team or Bill Butler, the cinematographer, the writers, ever, we were all off the project. It was done completely uh, w- without our consent or involvement uh, from scratch. Um, so for me, I saw it once um, and, you know, my, my friends had to hold me back from jumping out of a window. You know, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a pretty horrifying experience to see what it had been turned into. But it's nice to know that there was some measure of something in there mm-hmm. that, that still remained on, on whatever level. I, I can't watch it because it, it's just, it's, it's a painful experience. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if I can watch it looking back because a lot of the questions mm-hmm. I had with the first version of the movie were answered through years where they were already there. They were just restructured or they were taken out or it was made where they don't make sense. But before we get there, I I do want to ask you a little bit about your background, sort of what inspired you to make a movie like this. Starting out, what movies did you gravitate towards earlier in your life? And in what of those do you think uh, really helped inspire you in the making of this movie? It's it's a good question. There's a bunch of stuff. I'm I'm a film buff. I'm a film nut. I grew up on cinema. I grew up on classic cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 58 years old. And so I grew up, you know, for me, like the late sixties and all through the seventies was like when I was just, in, you know, yeah. going to the movies every freaking day. And, um, so cinema, you know, continues to be one of the most important things for me personally in my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, when I was young, I did love horror films you know, I gravitated away from horror uh, as we entered into the 80s and it became more slasher, torture porn kind of stuff. Yeah. And it started moving in that direction, which was has its interesting landmarks, but was less interesting to me as a genre that way. Um, I preferred it more when it was about uh, addressing social fears mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe a little more adult. Um, uh, so for good or bad, I decided for my first feature that I was going to do a horror film, but I wanted to do something that harkened back to the horror films I grew up with, which like I mentioned before, were about already existing social fears. And the story is kind of a a metaphor for those things. Um, And I I would say, you know, looking back, the, the thing I wish I hadn't, done was because it was my first feature, I was looking to position myself like, how can I make a film that's different and smart and unique, um, but also still have commercial viability because this is my jumping off point for a career. And now I wish I hadn't thought about the commercial career part of it at all, because now I don't think about that, Mm -hmm. you know, in anything that I do. But, uh, Unfortunately, that's that part of it is what attracted the wrong producers and the wrong production companies and the wrong studio um, mm-hmm. who wanted it to be just the commercial. Yeah. 
And I think yeah. I think what you mentioned when you mentioned films and especially horror from the sixties and the seventies, there was a lot more freedom to to explore ideas and push things. Um, I recently got to meet uh, William Crane, who directed uh, Doctor Black and Mister Hyde, uh, and Blackula, and he he yeah. spoke to a lot of it. He said his 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 love and success came from the fact that it was a half dashery put together film, but he was able to do whatever he wanted, and and I think that's the most beautiful thing about that. And again, I can see that the intent, like you said, that it's still that intent of you, it still shines through no matter what anyone tries to take away from it, um, especially with your version existing in the form that it does. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. I mean, it was, you know, I, I had a writing partner at the time uh, mm -hmm. named Keel Minton, um, uh, who also acted as, as producer on this, on The Plague. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, our, our goal when we were writing The Plague was to write something, you know, we, I love um, John Carpenter. You know, I, I, I was going to say that, <laughs> that this movie, the, the Clive Barker version, he really didn't have a lot to do with it, as I understand, but it's edited to rep, to be like a Clive Barker film. Yeah. This movie feels like very John Carpenter inspired, yeah. especially like late, late 70s, 70s Halloween era. Yeah. And my yeah. favorite, my favorite horror movie of all time is in the mouth of madness. And I love, uh, from beyond and like the Stuart Gordon kind of John Carpenter vibe that yeah. like it's Lovecraft without never needing to be Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you know, Carpenter was, was great in so many levels because he went from, you know, low budget to big budget back to low budget to all, you know, he, yeah. But there was a um, um, a pulpy kind of uh, quality mm -hmm. to his films, right? And and I love that because he embraced it, and and that's kind of what we wanted to do with the plague was, you know, even though the kinds of films I'm inspired by, you know, horror wise and socially conscious wise might be mm -hmm. things like The Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby and things like that, um, I really also wanted to do something that that had a kind of a B movie quality. Mm -hmm. You know, with a 70s yeah. feel, which is why I brought on Bill Butler, who had shot Jaws in the conversation yeah. and, you know, frailty Greece <laughs> um, from Jaws to Greece. Um, one of the things I think is interesting about the plague, and it's one of the things that really sets itself apart from contemporaries and ended up in many ways being inadvertently aped, I feel like, by a lot of modern movies, mm -hmm. is that it's almost like a movie in a snow globe where it's very reserved to just be the area you're in to just be following like these characters but everything that's on screen has a purpose and everything on screen is very fleshed out mm -hmm. so it's almost like a like an idyllic snow globe apocalypse if if that makes any sense thank you that's that's nice to hear cuz you know it was it was a film i spent uh you know a long time on storyboarding and really working out what, what, what it was, what the visuals were, what the story was, um, how, how I wanted it to be. Um, and at, at sort of every juncture of pre-production and production, those things got slaughtered, yeah. you know, uh, whether it was, you know, being forced to hire, uh, an actor who wasn't right for the part, you know, or, um, getting uh, up to Canada and finding out that our 30 day shoots been cut down to 20, you know, which we were told by, 
you know, three, three different line producers was not possible to do this film in 20 days. And it wasn't. We, we ended up cutting a lot and racing through a lot in shooting because we ended up with locations where we had one day that needed five days. And wow. it, was like, it was like, okay, we're going handheld. Is there, is there any scene that didn't make it to shooting that you feel like would have, like, is there one scene in particular would you point to be like, if, if I had an extra day, I would have shot this? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a bunch of sequences, um, in the, in the hospital, uh, the school turned hospital. Um, and, uh, because we were only given one day, we got that to, w- that was one day, one day. That's and, intense. <laughs> yeah. And, and what they basically, uh, told us at the end of the day was, um, you know, at this time in like an hour and a half, we're cutting the power and you have what you have and you get nothing else. So I literally had to like, just get rid of all these scenes that wow. happened in there and, um, and, and reduce some of it down to like the one take where they're coming out of the, um, the overhead, uh, Tom and Jean mm-hmm. come down and they're getting the medication and, you know, all that stuff was supposed to be over several scenes. And I just put it in a one shot because we had an hour, you know, I had to like set up a shot and try to get it all in there. But there was a scene from there, they're supposed to run into this room that is um, uh, the room of, of infants. So it's this room of all babies who had been born, you know, in, in the comatose state, in the catatonic state, but then wake up, but they're all just laying there awake. And Tom and Jean are, are sort of trapped in that room. And it was, you know, it was supposed to be all sort of wicker, uh, you know, old, old wicker um, wow. you know, beds for the, for the, for the babies. And um, I was really excited about that. But literally, we just like on the day, we just had to go, well, this we're whittling down all these scenes into one three minute passage. I think if I had seen that, that scene, I would have stood up and screamed like and like because just just the notion of that, like because we 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 talked about that while watching the movie. I remember saying like midway through when when you cut to the, the scene where they where they all turn and look. I, I remember, I think I said the first time I was like, where are the, ch- where are the babies? Yeah. Like that was like, I was like, in the implications of that alone to see yeah. that, to see it, especially at that sequence in the film, I think would have, I'm stunned right now. <laughs> it, it was, it was something I was really looking forward to shooting and we were all really excited about. It. And it was a cool scene because it was also this bonding moment between Tom and Jean mm-hmm. um, that happened while they were in danger, but also in this sort of creepy yet strangely quiet you know, room yeah. for a room full of, of, of babies. Um, would, would you have done it with live children or would you have done it with, uh, with like, we actually had, we had, we had anima, uh, animatronic kids made. Oh, we had everything. It was all, it was all ready to go. Wow. I, want, I wonder where those are. Do, yeah, do you have was... any animatronic babies in your house? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure someone up in, in Winnipeg, Canada still has them. Wow. I'm going to track one of those down one day. <laughs> Now I will say I'm very thankful that one of the scenes that was shot there uh, was able to get shot. It's one of my favorite scenes where uh, the laundry shoot, yeah, where Sam is untying the uh, the linens, and then right as he unties it, he sees one of the nurses who plummets to her death. Such a such a very powerful scene. 
And what's great is that it's completely unexpected as mm-hmm. well, because the way it's cut and the way it's built, you know, like you're you're seeing it through Sam's eyes, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it's actually. <laughs> so, so I, I'm at least glad that made it in there, because that's honestly that that might have been the one of the the best scenes of the whole movie. Thanks. Yeah. No, I, I love that, and and um, you know, and and Sam's one of my favorite characters. You know. Uh, as Brad Hunt plays him too, he's uh, he's he's you know both both the comic relief and the heart of it in a way, both at the same time. Well, one of the scenes I also really liked that takes place in a hospital, and, and I I just like to hear how it came together is the uh, one of the opening scenes, right when the news broadcast is going off, and you have all the children who are foaming at the mouth, just the way that it's shot where all of a sudden you go from one guy who has a child seizing up to having an entire room of children who are seizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really like that. And I also feel like for the two of us, that was the point in the movie where we're like, Oh, this is, this is like, like they know what they're doing here. Yeah. Could, it, it seems like that would have been a nightmare of a scene to shoot, but also sort of looked like everyone was having fun. How did that scene come together? That that one that one was a rough one actually because uh, it was it was a rough day in the shooting schedule. It was towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some things going on with the art department. There was friction and there was a bunch of stuff going on um, uh, with one of the actors. And um, we were having a, a hard time with some of the kids getting them to quite do do the physicality of it to okay. the level that we wanted. And. Um, uh, if, if it wasn't for the first AD, I don't think we would have gotten it done because he, he stuck it out even when I got to a point where I was like, screw this, I don't even know what to do anymore, and walked away. You know, he got he got angry with me, you know, and it was like, you can't do this. You know, yeah. like, we're here, you know, and and uh, so so he, he saved that. Um, if there's he, one thing I've learned from my time in film, it's that first ADs and script supervisors are some of the most underrated people on a film set. No doubt about it. And I was so lucky that, that my first AD and script supervisor on that were both amazing and they were a great team. And there's no way, no way the film would have gotten through that schedule without them. Yeah, no I way. think I think the greatest films we've we've ever gotten in general have there's like there's some deeply connected bond of teamwork at the middle of it. Um, and I think in some cases, like for George Lucas, it was unwilling where his wife edited his films and made them amazing. But then there's, <laughs> and then there's relationships like, you know, like the, in the exorcist and, and John Carpenter's career, working with different cinematographers that set the tone for what his movies were. And it creates that image. And yeah, you can see that collaboration, especially working with so many children, children and teens. I can only imagine, like I, I work with kids now and I can't imagine getting five of them, let alone 20 or 30 of them to line up, especially in such a haunting manner. Some of those shots near the end of the film. And I know Ben and I adored the end of the movie. And some of that really comes down to the performance of the children. And like, they're just not necessarily robotic, but like actually embodying that kind of possessed otherworldly experience and performance. I was like, ooh, I, I guess I, I went back and looked at some of the stills from the film today. And like, I stopped on one of the ones at the end where they're all circled around uh, the two ma- the two leads. And it's just like that alone, that, that screen grab is haunting. Well, those, 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 those actors, that, that group of young actors, 
I mean, they were all great. I mean, they were all game, you know, and, and, okay. that, and that, that was easy because they're, they're teenagers, they're adults, you can mm-hmm. communicate. It's a lot easier than trying to get six-year-olds to, to, <laughs> to, to do what you want or four-year-olds even. Um, but, uh, but they were great. They, you know, they were having a blast. You know, they were, they were getting to, you know, uh, just sort of dress up and be scary. Who you know, yeah, who doesn't love and, that? And, ca- and carry guns, which you know, which is which is which is terrifying because part of the the message part of the film, the the social consciousness, the social um, fear of one of the things that we're tapping into is is children and violence. How we teach that violence is a means to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the, the 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 gun issues here in America, just all of those things which were coming to a head at the time because after we'd written the script, while we were still shopping it around, Columbine happened. And for about a year and a half or so, no one would touch the script. No one would go near it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it took a little while, you know, but we kept saying, this is what our film is about. You know, it's about, you know, th- this exact thing. So it's kind of rewrote it. And then all the examples of it just kept, popping up culturally yeah it's, it's even more poignant today like as an educator watching it you could like you think you know i think about kids every day because it's my job it's my career and the message like carried through the movie and you're we watching it we're like this is just as relevant especially given that we watched it in a podcast we started during a pandemic and in a, in a plague while we're also being plagued by these things that are happening in our country and around the world it was yeah it's astonishing i could imagine this movie with the same message and same delivery like coming out today and like being at can and everyone like the response just from that the i can i always like to think like what's the ideal headline that ben and i could get from this podcast and i can imagine some of the headlines that your film could get in today's culture too it would it would be interesting i mean i would i would approach the film very differently now okay than i did then um only in terms of, you know, you know, I directed Jazz Nights, which is a documentary that you mentioned earlier, um, which was done for no money. And, and that that's like the, the film that really represents who I am. But um, uh, I wouldn't try to make um, the plague. Uh, I wouldn't try to make it commercial. I wouldn't think about the audience or the sellability. I would just tell the story the way I want to tell it. And Honestly, you were talking about, you know, big budgets, smaller budgets. Um, I, I have no interest in working with the big budgets anymore. I have no interest in doing a studio film for a big budget. Um, everything I need to do, I can do uh, low budget yeah. and and do it better. Yeah. Right. I, I, some of my favorite films have come out in the last couple of years have all been no budget like you know some of the best i think some of the best material we've seen in horror have been by independent creators on youtube or you know another online platforms like my favorite horror franchise of all of all time which was a web series uh, called marble hornets was done just by four guys who owned cameras and that was the that was the budget for the show was like their their jobs and what they had time to do at college and that pure art you know it's right there and i and i i love seeing it in some of your photography and I, especially, especially in your connection to jazz, which is a genre of music that is about freedom of expression. Exactly. It's about uncompromising, unflinching performance. And yeah, it's, it's a tremendous goal. You know, it's, it's a true artistic endeavor. 
Well, and, I, and I'd say that that is, you know, one of the things that the plague experience gave me. I mean, it was, you know, it was traumatizing. It was painful. It was exciting. <laughs> it was horrific. It was abusive. Right. It was every possible thing. You know, I still have some measure of uh, PTSD around it, you know. Um, but uh, it very quickly taught me that I do not want to work in that environment and under those restrictions and with those people. Right. You know, literally for me on that film, you know, the, the crew was amazing, but the people behind the scenes were some of the most, you know, sadistic, offensive human beings I've ever engaged with. And that's really not where I want to be creating. Um, and it made me realize very quickly that telling the story that I want to tell is what's most important to me. Mm-hmm. And anything that gets in the way of that, um, you know, it makes it not worth doing. I, I, I vibed with a lot of what you said right there. Uh, from, from my experiences out here, I've, I've met a lot of the same people. Uh, <laughs> so I, I definitely can, can commiserate with that plight. But in the last several years you've been, and it seems like throughout your career, you've, it seems like you've always gravitated towards casting. So how tell us about your casting career? How did casting affect the the plague and what you were looking for, and and how's that career path gone? Well, it's 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 casting uh, came uh, to me by accident. It wasn't something I was looking for. It wasn't uh, and literally when I, I moved to LA in in 1991 and immediately started you know working as a production assistant on low budget. Uh, horror films and all kinds of things. I, uh, I saw a credit for demonic toys in there. Demonic How toys. Yeah. Oh, I am a. I I I think Ben and I kind of became friends because I think I made a demonic. I made a, a reference to uh, Puppet Master. Yeah. The, as the best toy based horror movie, and Ben goes, "Wait, no, demonic toys." And like I was like, and like we looked, you're like, we're friends now, aren't we? <laughs> well, it's so it's so funny because demonic toys was was. Um, one of the first films I worked on in, in any capacity. And, um, and it was sort of, a, it, I, I started out as the office PA on it um, and then ended up being a set PA. And then somehow I became the key set PA. I don't remember how. And then two weeks before the production was over, one of the producers uh, came up to me and said, we don't know how you feel about this, but we're getting rid of the first and second AD. Can you just be the AD for the next for the last two weeks? And this is like the first film I've ever worked on in my life. You know, completely <laughs> ill prepared. Um, uh, but but I think they liked me, and and um, you know, so I was it was I was in way over my head. But that was my uh, introduction to to film in Hollywood was going from office PA to, to first assistant director uh, without earning any of it. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's beautiful. So, so how did you go from there to falling into casting? Um, I did, a, I did a bunch of low budget films and some television stuff working as a production assistant. And then someone I'd worked with, uh, called me up and said, Hey, we're working on a, a, a Disney film called Aspen extreme. And the casting director is looking for some help, you know, a production assistant. Do you want to do it? And I was like, hell yeah. And the casting director was a woman named Gail Levin, a brilliant casting director. And uh, Gail and I hit it off and just found that we worked really well together. And I loved, 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 loved working with actors. And the six months I spent 
on Aspen Extreme were just uh, were just a blast. I mean, they were really inspiring. And so um, I went with her onto her next project, which was a Paramount film called uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And that was kind of my real trial by fire. I mean, um, and, and you 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 pulled together an outstanding cast of what he oh it's eating Gilbert Gabe. We we watched that within the last year in one of our our weekly movie nights, and it was like across the board, everyone's like, "Wait, who's in this movie?" And then it just kept going, and like these people who we've seen and so many other things from that point forward, just a beautiful cast. Especially because that's a type of movie where like there is a thin line. To, to 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 tread on before you know looking at it from 2021 it'd look really bad but it doesn't it's it's really amazingly put together it was, you know, a lot of a lot of those people not all of them obviously but many of them were unknowns or semi-unknowns mm-hmm. at the time and, and have since uh you know become hugely successful actors and you know uh it was an amazing project to work on and it was really inspiring project and there was a short time where Gail had to go to New York and do casting. And I was put in charge of the LA casting again, incredibly prematurely. Uh, but, but, you know, happy to jump into it. Um, but at the end of the day, the casting that, that film, the reason the cast is so good is because of Gail, um, who, who just had an instinct and would fight for the right actor. She would fight for them. And there are a lot of times where she had to fight, to convince people this this is who needs to be in this role and she was right she was always right and we, we, we you've had a you had to have a fight too um from what we've heard with some with some of the casting in in, in the plague <laughs> yeah yeah um the the you know i've written so much about this and and i never know what is the 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 best way or the not best way to, to talk about it but but ultimately at the end of the day um the the producers um that were with the production company did not want to get a casting director and they just wanted to make offers and you know i I insisted on a casting director um and unfortunately there was a lot of um there was a lot of tension between the production company and the casting Mm -hmm. um but one of the things that ended up happening was um, we weren't finding, you know, the actor that I wanted for the lead. Mm-hmm. And it got to a point where um, we, they asked us if we'd meet with James Vanderbeek. And I said, you know, well, he's, he's about 15 years too young yeah. uh, for the part minimum. Um, and they said, you know, well, for us, meet with him. And I met with him and he was a nice guy and, and it was good conversation. But um, afterwards, uh, James came over to meet with Clive and I, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and Clive wasn't, uh, convinced and, and neither was I, mm-hmm. you know, to be completely honest at all. Um, but what, um, one of, um, Clive's producers said to me, pulled me inside and said, here's the deal. Um, the production company wants James. Um, and if you don't go with James, um, uh, they're, they're willing to take the script and, and keep it and never, and never get it made. That's so, cool. you, have, so you have, so you have your choice. He said, Clive, yeah. Clive's going to call you and tell you that James isn't right for the part and you need to convince him that he is right for the part. Otherwise you can't make this movie. And so I was cornered into, uh, um, now that said, mm-hmm. that said, 
there was, there was, there was something very interesting about him on screen. There was like, you know, so we had to do some rewrites because he was so different from the character we'd written and certainly from what I'd imagined and, and certainly the, the kind of actor that I was looking for, for that role. Um, uh, unfortunately did not turn out to be a good working relationship. And, um, uh, and it just made things much, much, much more difficult. And, um, you know, and, and I, I don't think he was right for the part. You know, I think we had very, very different uh, visions of what that character was and also goals for, I think, what James wanted to get out of this film and what I wanted to get out of it were two very different things. If you had, if you had the pick of the stars throughout history, you know, past actors, modern actors, current actors at the time, who do you, who did you like see in your head fitting into that role? Cause like I, I, when I was watching, I was like, I like, I love Sam Neill and I can imagine him in every movie. And yeah. I was like, I was like, Sam Neill could crush this movie. But he would. And that, and that was literally the caliber of, of, of actor that, that I was reaching out to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it's one of those projects that, you know, it, 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 you learn as you go and it's trial by fire. And it's my first feature film mm-hmm. as a director, even though I'd worked in Hollywood for a long time and made a bunch of shorts. Um, and you just kind of get swept up in um, the forcefulness of, of everyone around you and, and the threats. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that, that come. Um, and um, there were, there were several actors um, that, had been attached and then, and then ended up not in there for various reasons or other actors that I was so excited to have in there. But then one of Clive's producers was like, now I've worked with her before. I hate her. No. Mm. And I was like, it's like, not about you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, so we, we, we lost a lot of people. Um, and you, to, you to, I'd imagine Clive would kind of understand. I mean, most of his, a lot of his films were also, you know, taken apart. Um, the problem, at least from, from my perspective, I can't yeah. speak for Clive or, or, or what was going on in his world. But the way it appeared to me was um, his producers, especially his main producer, um, who was just, uh, uh, t- to me, was just kind of a, a nightmare of a, of a human being, mm-hmm. um, uh, just kept saying, Clive doesn't care about this film. Don't talk to Clive. Clive doesn't know what the hell's going on, you know. And um, and I wish that I'd talked to Clive more. Right. Yeah. And I wish I wish I had, you know. And I, and there was a point in post production when you know they wouldn't let us into the editing room when you know it was just doors were locked. Yeah. And um, and I, I I put in some messages to Clive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and I found out later that they were all like, none of those messages were getting, getting to him. Wow. You know, just sort of like what's happening here, what's going on. So my right. personal interaction with him, um, when I had interaction with him was great and he was always supportive. It was the people around him, mm-hmm. uh, that were, that were, uh, kind of a nightmare. Yeah. I think, I think you can see some of the, that nightmare in like films like Nightbreed. Um, yeah. which is another movie similar to actually yours that I was lucky enough to see a re-edit of where someone went to Clive Barker's like studio and got all the original footage yeah. and knitted it back together. And you're like, Oh, that's what this movie was supposed to be. Like that was yeah. the original intention. I, you know, there's, yeah, it's, it's what scared me when Ben went to LA for the first time. Some of the people he was dealing with, I was like, how are these, how are these movies getting made in the first place with these kind of 
volatile people who are just like not it's not art it's it's not art at that point it's 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 financial production <laughs> well and that and that for, for me that is 98 percent of what hollywood does now you know it's, it's accountants and lawyers um not film lovers and and you know it's that's been happening for a long time with that said, I, I do want to give a shout out to casting departments and pretty much for pretty much every movie. And I'm sure you've experienced it, too. I I don't know of a single department that works later in the night every day than casting people. Uh, when I worked in the business, I guaranteed I'd be working at nine, ten o'clock at night. I would email the casting assistant and they would always respond every time. You know, it it, it, it takes a lot to work, especially in casting. Uh, and, and I think it also explains a, a lot of a lot of view of how you're able to do so many of these different things that are so widely disparate and, and make them all work. Just because I, I, I feel like that's sort of the I, I feel like you have a casting personality. <laughs> well thank you i i wish i wish um uh i i wish the play had been able to um show that off better um uh in many ways but that said uh there are people in that film like 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 brad hunt and and, and bradley sawatsky and and um um, John Connolly, who plays the sheriff, who I wrote the part for, and then of yeah. course D. Wallace, who's just brilliant and could not have been more supportive, oh, and yep. and she was just a, a treasure, you know, to to work with every second. So did, I did have good, really good people on there. So I know you wrote the one part for him, but did you having the casting experience? Did you have generally more input on the casting in this movie versus? Uh, versus someone who didn't have that experience? Unfortunately, no. I didn't so much as, you know, while we were casting, I could I could say, you know, no, this person's not right, whatever. But at the end of the day, um, so much was decided by uh, the production company behind our backs. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, even in terms of crew, you know, even though I'd meet with a bunch of crew people, I'd show up and they'd have hired, like, whoever they wanted. Already. That's bizarre. Yeah, and you know, and then of course the the thing with um, uh, with with James, you know, sort of right. It's it's the unfortunate thing that even in my cut, it's not the film I set out to make. Sure, mm -hmm. but I but I I feel like though the important thing about the movie that still gets through is that is that emotional core and the mm -hmm. theme of it, and and what I appreciate about the plague is that it's very much inspired by horror movies from the 70s. But at the same time, it's honestly, even though it's deliberately vague, mm. everything still makes sense and everything has a purpose. Like, I went to a screening of Phantasm a few weeks ago, and I asked the the director, which I love Phantasm. I think it's great. Yeah. I but, saw Phantasm 2 like a day later. Yeah. It was an incredible back-to-back <laughs> -back day for the two of us. So, but the uh, writer, director, and producer of Phantasm, he was doing a QA and a um, after the movie. And so I asked him, how did the movie change from like the script phase to the editing phase? 
And he said, you know, we really didn't have much of a script. We just shot a lot of scenes we thought were cool and we put them together and yeah, it worked out. So they just sort of got lucky creating this weird psychedelic horror film, you know, whereas the plague, everything is purposeful. Everything's put together. And and one of those things that I, I really liked being incorporated was the use of the grapes of wrath as one of like those main storytelling points uh, in the movie. And one of those things that keep getting called back to were, were there other books there where you were sort of like, okay, I want a book, which one am I going to use? Or, or did you from the outset really want to use the grapes of wrath and go with that? It, it, it was the grapes of wrath from the beginning. It's, it's one of my favorite books. And, and I was, I was kind of, you know, because the whole idea that we just keep telling the same stories over and over in different ways. Um, and, um, and I was tickled by the idea of using grapes of wrath and the structure of grapes of wrath in both the book and the film, um, you know, as, as sort of hinting points, visual hinting points and, and structural hinting points. Um, and, um, so for me, that was, that just, that just gave it this interesting backbone. Mm -hmm. And then also anyone who sort of knew Grapes of Wrath, either the book or the film or both, right. would start to recognize all kinds of things in there. So it just it made it more fun, but it also um, gave, gave it more poignancy too, you know, mm -hmm. because it just, it, it already comes sort of with this built-in uh, idea behind it and this, this built-in struggle. Right. And, and so in speaking of, of, of things like that one of the most discussion worthy parts of the movie i i would say is the quote from the children what, what the children are are saying amongst each other and whispering around uh the kingdom of heaven is near and should anyone offer their soul to one of these children he will through death deliver those who through fear were subject to slavery all their lives Really powerful quote. I, I love it because all the words make sense and it's still ambiguous. Um, <laughs> I, I, what, what inspired you to put to you or Teal to, to put this quote together? And was there a lot of workshopping from that? How, how that process go? We, we had a number of, of different quotes that we played around with before we settled on that one. And I, and I still to this day kind of go, ah, should I put that, put that in there? Or no, I just not had any quote. Like I still, you know, kind of go, ah, I don't know if I, if I like that there or not. Um, but because what the film was about in so many ways was how we, how, how we act when we're, when we, when we don't have answers, you know, and we react out of fear yeah. and, and, you know, and, and that we pass that down from generation to generation. Right. We yeah. pass responding out of fear, creating fear, creating, you know, enemies, creating all of these things, uh, and then responding to it with violence. Um, and um, even though I'm, I'm personally, you know, an atheist, I, I love uh, religious iconography and symbolism, and, and there's just something... Uh, you know, kind of horror movie terrifying about the idea that that this is a punishment. You, you and Matt, you, you and you and I Matt have a say, lot in yeah. common. I, yeah, I, I, mean, I, was... I shot half the movie in a church. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm an atheist Jew, but I, you know, like I'm drawn to the church. 
Hey, I'm Jewish. Yeah. Hey, here we go. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I, I've I've always loved. I, I'm also an atheist, but I've I've also found this deep connection. Like when I when I talk to my friends who are have faith or about the notion of faith, my the one thing I always say was, if this were to be real, there is no way something as small as us could comprehend it existing. Exactly. If if religion was real, it would be what Lovecraft portrayed. Just to, to view it would drive you insane. Yeah. And yeah. that's captured in some early religions across the world where anytime anyone actually interacts with the divine or a divine type of thing, it's either through a conduit that we can rationalize or they are struck with fear and their eyes bleed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... Well, yeah. No, I'm always I'm always telling people, you know, I don't know what, you know, if there's life after death or anything, but I'm I'm kind of hoping there isn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, because because what it what it might be if there is something might be just eternally horrifying. So I'd rather just sort of stop. My, my yeah. one of my favorite afterlife explanations was in uh Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Um and they captured it well in the TV show where when you die, you are delivered to the afterlife you envisioned for yourself. And one of the most like petrifying moments in that in that novel is a character who believed in nothing um, meets Osiris and he she goes he's like all right well you passed the test and uh, here's an open door and all that was through it was darkness and he goes that's what you always thought was coming <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 I'm I be, yeah I'm gonna be walking through that door unfortunately yeah yeah I. I'd probably jump through it. You know, like I always said, if, if I had a choice, I'd, if someone just would just drop my body out into space and right, let, right. let me float away and see the yeah. void of space before me. And I'd be that, that's my happiest out. <laughs> right. Right. I know. I know for most people, that's terrifying. I'm just like, no, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Go out with a bang. Yeah. So yeah. What, were there any other real literary inspirations for you, whether it comes from writing or it comes from your artistic vision in general? Because I got, I got like a lot of sense of, you know, like I said, Lovecraft, The Grapes of Wrath. I felt a lot of one of my favorite recent authors is Thomas Mann. Um, oh. I've reread his book, The Magic Mountain, about four times now. Um, and I kind of get that sense a lot, not just from your, your, the film, but from some of your other, your music videos and some of your photography, this kind of freedom um, to it that I see in some of that literary influence. It's, I, I've always, uh, you know, grown up um, reading. I've always been a big reader, you know, um, more actually in my, in my uh, young adult life than in my current adult life. Um, but there, I have so, there's so many things that have influenced me, you know, and, and being a big cinema person and, and a big reader, you know, like, and, and you wouldn't necessarily know it from the writing in the plague, but um, but but script is so important and words are so important, and um, trying to find that line, ride that balance between sort of what makes a B horror film, mm -hmm. and 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 still what what how how do you make it a, a notch above or a notch more interesting, you know, and. Um, for me, I, I looked like I mentioned earlier uh, things like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby and things like that. Um, just where you know, I think the, the the plot, you know, isn't isn't what the story's about and the social fears that it taps into and whether it's something like The Exorcist, where you know, it, it, it for me, it's the fears are 
a, a mother who doesn't know what's going on with her child, right? Yeah. I don't know. Like she's 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 acting out. She's violent. She's mm-hmm. cursing. She's acting out sexually. I don't know what's going on behind her bedroom door. Yeah. I don't recognize her anymore. You know, all of those essential primal fears that, that a mother, you know, or a parent would feel um, that that are infused into that film, you know, in the form of this possessed kid, right? Yeah. But, right. but the fears are really human centered. Yeah, kind of like um, in, like in Carrie, where it takes the perspective of the daughter who's yes. the repressed one, and then you see that kind of repressed like childhood teen angst rage funneled into this scene where she's covered in blood and burning a school down. Or one of my favorite films of all time is is the is Wicker Man's is seventy three's oh, Wicker Man, where I describe it as a film, a horror film specifically for religious british people (laughs) it's like it's the it's the key of it it's just like this is terrifying if you watch this movie and you have that mindset of the of the cop it is a horrific film and and to me it's like i sit and revel in it and i'm like cheering you know uh when he's on he's on when um christopher lee's on screen saying the gods are dead you know they have a band i'm like ah and I, i had friends who watched the movie and they're like that's wrong. And I'm like, that's, that's why it's so right. <laughs> I agree. I agree a hundred percent. You know, there's just, there's so much, that, there's so much already existing fear in the world and, and we manufacture that and, 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 you know, and, and living in America, that's part of one of the things that we do is, mm-hmm. you know, we, 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 we get things done by manufacturing a lot of fear um, in, in within and without our borders, but um, you know, growing up with that, you know, I, I I look at Rosemary's Baby in the time when that was made, you know, and and again, you're dealing with social cultural fears that are relevant in the time. They're still relevant today, but mm-hmm. you know that that a woman has no control over her career, no control over her body, that her husband's career is what comes first, even over her body. Yeah. You know, that there's just so it's like you're taking, you know, this time when that's really coming to a forefront and taking that fear and turning it into a, a horror film, mm-hmm. you know, uh, about having the, the devil's baby. But the fears that it's tapping into is not it's not right. fear of the devil. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the exorcist. The exorcist has really when you when you're diving, it has nothing to do with Satan. It has not. And even no. when you and they make fun of it in like the exorcist three. And it's like it, it, it ends up parodying itself because the people who remade those sequels saw the demon and were like, "That's what the movie's about," not, not about you know, like you said, parents not understanding their children or them acting out and changing is yeah. one of the greatest fears I think a lot of parents and adults in general deal with. It's it's well, difficult to confront purity changing. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and 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 the Exorcist captures it beautifully because mm-hmm. you know she is she's this pure you know, sweet young girl mm-hmm. in the beginning. And, um, and, and, and that changes pretty, pretty dramatically, you know, and that's the thing. And the exorcist is, isn't also, it's not about the Linda Blair character, right? Yeah. It's about the mother and a priest, Yeah, you know? And um, it was one of the things that we always talked about on the plague, which was one of the disappointing things was the, the guy that ended up being in charge of it uh, in post-production um who i'd worked with for three years um and we'd always talked about that if it got in the wrong hands 
that they would want to turn it into a killer kid film. And the idea was that this isn't a film about killer kids. That's not what this film's about. It has killer kids in it, <laughs> but that's not what that's not what it's about. And literally, this guy said to me on the day that 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 I got kicked out of the editing room. Um, in addition to this is my film now, not yours. Um, you fucking piece of shit was his exact words. My God! Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. It was a pretty intense experience. But he said, he said. We're cutting out. We're cutting out all the characters and turning this into a killer kid film. It almost sounds like they did it just to spite themselves. I, I I think you know. And again, I can't get into other people's heads. And and this was many years ago too. And and you know the people that I'm talking about. Who knows? I don't know what they've gone through and what changes they've made. And you know where they were at that point in their lives. And I, you know it's, it's it was a horrible horrible experience for me. And it was an abusive experience. Um, um, and, and I don't know where any of those people are or, or what they're like now. I don't want that to carry on into their lives because, um, but this particular person, I didn't know until after I was already on the project, he had been a Fox exec. And while I was on set, he'd start bragging about all the films he took away from the directors. So he'd talk about, you know, how um, John Woo didn't know how to direct an action scene, so he had to take Broken Arrow away from him and recut it. And he did Queen of the Damned, he recut. And, you know, and um, Alien 4, you know, talking about Jean-Pierre Genet doesn't know how to set up a camera and da-da-da. And, you know, and as, as production's going on, I'm like, I, have I gotten myself, you know, <laughs> in with the wrong person here? And clearly I had because he did the same thing, exact same thing to me. Um, you, you found your Mephistopheles to your, to your <laughs> Faust. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have to be honest. I've never heard anyone brag about Alien 4 before. Um, <laughs> or Queen of the Damned. If, 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 if there was any Alien movie to be like, you know, I actually didn't work on that one, it would be Alien Resurrection. But that, that's probably a story for another day. But I, the good thing with, even with the theatrical cut, it's still there's still a kernel of it there, but especially in your re-edit, is is that it really is, especially for its era, one of the only films where there is that sort of core fear that 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 comes from it. Whereas, you know, it was edited to go from like a nightmare on Elm Street where it's like, oh, afraid of dreams, okay, to like a, you know, Freddy's dead. Which like I like, but like it's not it's not the same thing whatsoever. Right. Yeah, it's like uh, I'll, I'll never show someone Nightmare on Elm Street two until I've shown them Nightmare on Elm Street one and the rest of them. Because I'm like, you're not ready for the tonal shift you're about to deal with when you watch this movie. Completely different animal. Yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah. let's just skip on to Freddy making jokes about and slamming people's heads into TVs. Like that. That's that's where your safety zone is. Exactly. The the one real final question i have about the movie is and and we obviously know like what the idea behind the children you know in terms of a out of storyline reasoning like what inspired it but in terms of your headcanon for the world in which these characters live in i don't i don't want an answer because because that's not what this is about and you know when something's made it's it it goes up for interpretation but do you in your head have your own head cannon for what causes for what caused the plague and how it works out or or is it even sort of ethereal for you um, I, I have 
I, I have ideas, but I never let myself lock down onto any one thing because I, I one of the things that I love in the world is is not knowing the answers. And I know that's what makes people uncomfortable. And, and I know that the ambiguous ending of the plague makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, and that's okay. Because again, it's, it's, you know, not, not having the answers is, is part of it. So for me, um, I don't want all the answers, but I do have, you know, my sort of line of, of, of what's affecting what. Right. Without having the big, global answer you know is it god is it the universe is it is it something you know more nefarious and earth-based you know it's it's and i want i want people to be able to sort of take their own fears and their own thoughts and trickle those in and i have some of my own thoughts that are right they're not but they're not set in stone in any way and and that actually reminds me of one of the best most underrated scenes in the film is the one-on-one section with Sam and uh, the other officer, I think Nathan, Nathan, where, yeah. Yeah, Nathan. Where, where they're just hanging out in the church with him and his leg, and, and they're just casually thinking about, like, huh, you know, I wonder what this is. Huh, maybe it's aliens. He's like, oh, really? You think it is? But that's yeah. – it, it, it was honestly sort of mirroring the conversation we were having around the same point in the film, yeah. and it's great because it really brings you back from, yeah. you know, what – can become like this bizarro out of world concept. It's like, you know, it grounds it. It's like, these are still people. This is still so really, really great stuff. Also the exact answer I was hoping for. So that also makes me very happy. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a big fan of the unknown. And I think, you know, and if, and if you're making a horror film, the, you know, the, the unknown is scary. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's part of what makes it so terrifying is I don't know why this is happening. I don't know how it's happening and I don't know why it's happening. All I know is that it's, it's horrifying and I don't think I deserve it, but maybe right. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, so, if, yeah, that, that notion of like anytime a grand scale thing happens, it's what did I do yeah. and what did we all do? And, right. and right. it's, it's the movies that, that don't capture, that don't, don't let that simmer inside the viewer that I think end up scaring people away. Like a movie like The Happening, for example, where it's just explained and it's just like, it's just the grass is mad at you. Like I'm no longer afraid of your film, but I know one of the movies Ben and I connected over was the uh, 97 film Cube. And I remember asking the director one day on Twitter being like, hey, it's my birthday. Like what's outside the cube? And all, and all he said to me was uh, fear and ignorance. Yeah, and and I, I was like, that's all I needed. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That's the perfect answer. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it was interesting to see what, um, what the studio was uncomfortable with in terms of what they cut out and the, the, the pacing of the film, they changed dramatically and the structure of it. Cause I cut back and forth, which I feel builds rhythm, but mm-hmm. you yeah, know, the, the sequence, um, you know, uh, where the, where the young woman goes back to her house, if you remember that sequence, Um, that's, that's not in the producer's cut. You know, that was, those are the moments that for me are the sort of the quintessential, um, um, landmark moments for characters where everything changes for them in that moment. And if you take that out, then everything's unmotivated. Then you haven't actually gone on this like traumatic journey that they went on that changed them. 
Yeah, and yeah, and it's actually. Uh, I was reading through because you sent over essentially a, a pitch packet for the Ryan director's cut, and I was reading through it and seeing the attention to detail you put in with each scene really highlights how flawed the producer's cut is even more. <laughs> uh, j- just because. You know, you point out how in certain scenes you fade from you go, uh, you dolly from left to right when you're dealing with the adults. And then when it's the children, you dolly from right to left, which is very disconcerting. You add in a shot in the hospital room where the children are sleeping and you juxtapose that with a shot of literally, you know, wartime explosions and documentaries going on, which I think was entirely taken out of the producer's cut. There's so much of that underlying meaning and so many layers that were that were scraped away. Um, my question for you is, for those of us who want to see the writer director's cut of The Plague come out, what should we do to help spread the word and actually get this ball rolling thanks for asking that question it's it's um it's i've been fighting to get my cut released in in so many different ways um over the years and um you know the people who were in charge over at screen gems that that i dealt with um uh had no interest in in it ever seeing the light of day um uh and you know and I, you know, after a while I stopped, you know, after about a decade, <laughs> I stopped <laughs> fighting, you know, and I don't even know if the original elements exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but the best thing to do is, is, you know, to, to write to Sony, Sony screen gems mm-hmm. and, you know, let the people there who are working there now, who are probably different people than were working there when I made this film and say, Hey, you've got this film that you know got screwed over and you know and there's a director's cut and it's not out there but it's it's the one that people respond to Mm -hmm. um make them aware you know uh of it um i've come close several times to being able to to get that done and then it falls apart yeah and i i I know from experience like there's there's cinemas here in chicago i'm in chicago um and the the indie film scene here is fantastic and i know there's theaters that would you know like if they if they had the option the music box which is the the horror capital of the city would slam that onto a screen in a heartbeat especially because i've i talked to the the guy who runs their music box of horrors and he knows the or producer's cut and i was talking to him about your cut at the uh, music box of horror and he goes there's more and he's like he's like I, he knew about the contention but he didn't know about your cut and I was like telling him, he was like, this is incredible because we had, they had just shown like the first re-edit of like Night Beast 2, um, <laughs> like at the drive-in this year. And we were talking about these re-edited movies or like the correctly edited films. And he was like, that's fascinating. And those are the, ge- those are the gems that horror fans alone and, and film fans, I think, are hungry for. Well, and it, and it, and it would be, you know, for me, it, 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 it's that balance of trying to move um, move on from something that's been painful and difficult. Right. Um, and just focus on the films I'm making now and what I'm doing next. And, and, and that, um, versus the fact that having a film out there with my name on it, that doesn't represent me in any way, shape or form is, is really painful. 
you know, that, that sort of, that doesn't go away. Um, so being able to at least put the film out there that we made, you know, even if it's not the film I set out to make, even if it, what, all, all of those caveats, um, we did make a film. Yep. And only a handful of people have seen the film we made. And, and the film that's out there was, was, you know, cut together by people who had, you know, very, very, very different goals in mind. And, and, and just to reiterate, there is no way for you to distribute it in your current form. No festivals, no, no showings, no theaters, no anything. So like, not, not, not legally. Correct. So, (laughs) um, so hopefully in the nearer future, we can find a world where the correct cut of the plague is released. But while that is worked on, what, what projects are you uh, currently working on? Um, I'm actually, um, I'm in the process of, I mentioned to you guys earlier before mm-hmm. the interview, uh, in the process of moving to Spain, moving to uh, Catalonia um, uh, for, for, you know, a myriad of reasons. But um, one of the big ones is uh, it's easier for me to make my films there. Yeah. Mm. And uh, just more opportunity um uh, and, and, you know, and not, not under the, the, you know, the, the, the Hollywood led ceiling. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, you know, I've got three projects that I'm trying to get off the ground, you know, all, all independent yeah. and, um, you know, and so it looks like I'll be making them, uh, over there. That's amazing. And and just to touch on some of what you're already doing over there, you were just fil- you were just uh, f- photographing at the um, the jazz festival in Barcelona, right? Can you yeah. tell us about that experience? I, I've always I'm a I came into becoming an extrovert by going to concerts because I, I grew up in a world where the music I liked was not what anyone I, around me liked. But then I could go to live music and be like, oh, look at all of these friends look at these loving amazing people and so i've i've always been captivated by capturing those moments and so what has it been like you for capturing live film and compared to some of the studio filming you've done in photography uh working with musicians i love photographing musicians um my my photography career came out of doing jazz nights and doing my feature film about la jazz musicians mm-hmm. Um, and then in jazz nights, I combined them and it was this incredible experience on, on every level. Um, and then that led to photography and, and a certain amount of videography, um, and getting to work the Barcelona jazz festival was incredible because again, just to be able to, to travel somewhere beautiful mm-hmm. and go to these amazing venues and see such incredible music, but I love improvisational music. Yeah. which is why I love jazz so much, jazz and jam bands and um, people who are out there taking risks in front of an audience who they don't know where it's going to go. They don't know. And they're just doing it in the moment. And there's something so pure. And when it clicks, it's magical. And it's as close to, like I said before, I'm an atheist, but it's as close to God, Yep. you know, as, as I can understand. And so to be able to sort of capture people capturing that, yeah, I, I, I've always said, I say to kids all the time that if you're looking for real magic in this world, it's in live music. It's, yeah. the, it's the thing that's connected us. It's at the base of all of our religions. Yeah. It's music. It's, it's the music. shared experience of that, that 
it's it's true magic and cinema can capture that books can capture that but there's nothing quite like the live experience and i think you mentioned it before the interview live cinema in a theater with a crowd with an audience captures that too all of my favorite films of all time have been at theaters especially small theaters like a packed 30 person theater like i saw the uh, gaspar noe's film climax in a theater with like six of my friends and 20 other people and it was just the most tense uncomfortable room of people i've ever been in and it's my favorite cinematic experience in a theater (laughs) Uh, yeah i mean it's there's there's nothing like it you know i i was able to have a screening of jazz nights um in cardideo in spain while i was over there um that was just the most gratifying screening experience i've ever had you know just in terms of the the reception from people you know and it just there's something different that happens when you get a bunch of people and you give them a a communal experience well we're gonna miss having you in america but seems like you are going to be much much better off far far away from us So well, not, ne- I, not necessarily I, far away from you guys. There we yeah. go. Yeah. There we go. I'll, I'll, I like I'll, I'll always be just a Zoom call away from you. Ah, oh, fantastic. Well, we're talking to the next Argento of Spain. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I'm, I think I'm getting too old to uh, to follow in his footsteps. So, oh, not at all. Yeah. It's it's always there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming online and talking with us. <laughs> Super excited we could talk to you about The Real Plague, a truly underrated movie, and we could talk to you about some of your other projects as well. For for now, do you have uh, anywhere you'd like people to reach out to you on, any platforms, any websites you'd like to uh, focus on? Yeah, I would, I would have people go to uh, Hal Masonberg Photography. That's where you're going to find the bulk of the work that I'm doing now. Uh, and, um, I have my off leash films website as well, um, which, uh, outlines some of the projects Great. that I'm trying to get off the ground at the moment. Um, and the only other thing I would add to all of this is, um, because the plague, you know, was such a difficult experience and there's so much sort of, um, you know, pain and discomfort around it. I also want to just make sure that I, that I reiterate that what's come out of it and like what I was saying before and sort of what I've learned about what I want and the importance of, of for anyone else. And this is something I teach in my acting classes is, is don't, don't try to give people what you think they want. Don't second guess. You don't have an audience until you've made your, your, your art and then it finds its audience. And we all have unique voices and it feels so important to me personally that our unique voices get expressed because each one of us, right? We experience the world and the universe in a way that no one else ever has. Right. And yet you're not so unique that you're going to create something that's going to alienate the rest of the human race. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. It's never so going to make, happen. make the shit for yourself. Tell the story you want to tell do, you know, like there's going to be compromise along the way, just by the environment and all other things. Right. Um, but the things that have moved me the most uh, as, as an audience member, as someone on the receiving end, are, are, are the things that are made by people who just had a vision and went for it. And I want to see more of that. And so if, if, if I learned anything 
on the flag. It was to to commit to that mm-hmm. because that that having done both, having done a studio film mm-hmm. that doesn't represent who I am, and having done independent films that do, um, it's it's night and day. There's no no comparison. So embrace embrace what's inside you and. Don't worry about the people who aren't going to like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pay attention I, to the ones who will. I, I can't think of a better anthem for this podcast as a whole. I was about than, to than say the right same there. thing. Yeah, <laughs> the, these you're the you're the you exemplify the kind of artists that we love to highlight. It's it was truly a pleasure talking to you. It, it, there's 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 few times where I feel like I meet someone who I consider like a kindred soul. Uh, like when I, I like when I met Ben and what brought us together as best friends, you know, this man stood next to me while I got married. Uh, I'm going to stand right next to him when he does. Um, it, there's, there's a type of person out there that I think cultivates a mindset of freedom and artistic freedom and what it means to be to what I consider an artist. And I don't think you have to create art to be an artist. You can just be that experience. That mindset alone means you're bringing art into the world around you. I, I, I say to my, I say every day, my objective is to bring light to the world. I want the world to be a brighter place. And the only way you can do that is with freedom of thought, freedom of expression. And, you know, we say it on this podcast, you don't always succeed on your first time. You don't always succeed your second time. Your third time might still be hard, but sometimes the fourth time's the charm. <laughs> and and that's, that's what matters. You got to keep doing it. And to you, thank you so much, Hal. Um, it was a true, genuine pleasure. Thank you. Same here for me. I'm, I'm honored to, to be on here with you guys. Thank you. I want to make sure everyone goes out and sees Jazz Nights, if you can find it. Seeing no, music. you can't. You can't because it's it's caught up in music rights at the moment. Oh. So I, I only make films you can't show publicly. <laughs> Our favorite. That's There's, the kind of music I listen you're, to. You're like a you're like a reverse Banksy in a way. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. I have, I have so the many. Next, ha- next project will will the next film will get out there for public consumption. All right, we're holding you to that. And, yep. and when it's ready to go, we better have you on here again so we can talk about it. <laughs> Anytime. Anytime you guys want, I'm in.